0: Well thank you for inviting me. Uh, I want to uh, acknowledge actually uh, two important persons are sitting here in my publishing career, uh, Krishnan and Aditi. They are the uh, co-editors of the first book uh, in which I was involved. They were, they were the ones who put it together. And had it not been for them it would probably not have happened. And then the rest of the books I did, you know, who knows what might have happened. So I am very glad that they are both here. After a long time I am seeing both of them. Present, So I just want to acknowledge that. I also want to say that Columbia is where the first uh, academic grants given by Infinity Foundation happened. We were giving grants to schools and other kinds of things but a decision was made that you know the place where it all starts if you want to impact the discourse has to be universities and uh, a series of meetings with various people led to uh, me coming to Columbia University. And the first uh, grant, which is fairly substantial, it was in the six figures, it was big for us at least uh, in those days, it's in the mid 90s, was given to the uh, religion department at Columbia University. Because I, I had this idea, I did not understand how the academy works, but I understood my tradition and how it's portrayed. And what's not portrayed, what's over portrayed and so on. And I had been uh, involved in consciousness studies for many years. Uh, There's a Tucson conference regularly. There is a journal of consciousness studies. It's a very serious subject with neuroscientists, cognitive scientists, psychologists, philosophers. And in the early years of the consciousness studies movement in this country, most of the articles and speakers were talking about Vedanta, Hinduism, Buddhism kind of ideas. They were talking about non-duality, all sorts of ex- things that were new to the western world. They were part of uh, new age since the 60s. And then it was being uh, sanitized and turned into an academic grade knowledge, uh, brought into a, s- in a field called consciousness studies which uh, didn't quite fit in any particular conventional department so it was a multidisciplinary approach. That is where you studied the effects of yoga uh, the effects of meditation the whole mindfulness industry the mindfulness revolution was starting lucid dreaming which is yog nidra all these kind of things were being discussed uh, and, and uh, the idea of the divine feminine and what does it have to do with the masculine in terms of human physiology the tantra the chakras all, all kinds of stuff were the topics over there so it uh, i discovered one of the first Things I discovered is that none of that seems to be in the academic study of Hinduism. So it's more a question of what's left out. I thought that you know this is something I would bring as news to them. But nobody wanted to, nobody in the academic world I talked to really felt that that was important, that was serious. Uh, You know they were more interested in what I call the caste, cows and curry ideas of Hinduism. Anthropology, human rights, male dominated, Brahmin dominated, Violence against Muslims, this sort of staple themes. So I started. Uh, uh, I, I gave a grant here to uh, discuss the philosophical uh, dimensions. And when I looked back at the uh, email, I, I was just looking to refresh my memory for this talk. To the whole old email thread, the philosophy department didn't show up for a six-figure grant. Because in their words, I think it was Akhil Bilgrami who is who's still there, very prominent philosophy person. Uh, there is no such thing as Indian philosophy. Okay? There is you know, there, there's religion. So this idea that Indians also have a philosophy was not something acceptable to the philosophy department. And most philosophy departments today would still say that with some exceptions. And then the religion department's view also excluded these kind of topics I have in mind the topics I just mentioned. The, what I would consider the value of the tradition in today's world. So there was this uh, dichotomy. Why does the religion department not cover these aspects of Hinduism when they are covered in consciousness studies, they are co- all over the place. The yoga thing was booming in those days. There is animal rights. There is sacredness of the ecosystem. Vandana Shiva was being appropriated right and left on eco-feminism. You know, all of that was coming from Hinduism. And yet the place where Hinduism is studied and taught didn't have much to say on that because it had its own different preferences. And you can't blame them, people have a right to choose what they study. So this is where my journey started, right here in Colombia. And, uh, and I developed a good relationship with Bob Thurman because I found the Buddhist department, Buddhism department was much more friendly even towards Hinduism. So, so a whole lot of these Hindu ideas could be smuggled in through the Buddhism department. So we did another big grant a few years later with the Buddhist people in Colombia, the Tibet house. And we had a huge four day conclave in uh, Woodstock uh, which was a very big success. So that's how things got started. And I found that uh, uh, the influence on the religious studies was largely anthropology, uh, sociology, It's the sociology of religion, the politics of religion, human rights oppression and later some people introduced me to this idea i think Christian was one of them to the idea of atrocity literature as something very deep in white culture atrocities of native americans mexicans blacks as sort of people who commit atrocities on their fellow human beings and as a justification for intervening and invading them and civilizing them and then that could be compared with the same kind of discussion going on in india about the civilizing mission so the civilizing mission in India by the British and the atrocity literature and the conquest of the frontier in America were happening about the same time. And I could see those tropes being applied in the way in what, pe- what people wanted to find interesting and exotic about, uh, about Hinduism. Now I do not want to say everybody's like that. People often defend by saying well I'm I am different, I know a lot of people are different. But this is the part that caught my attention. It's not the only aspect of Hinduism certainly going on. So this uh, led to uh, my interest in understanding what goes on in the academic world and I had a number of interventions. I've learned a lot. I made mistakes. I sometimes uh, criticized too much or, and maybe too little or maybe the wrong kind of view. So I, I started, uh, the first idea was that grant giving f- outside from outside, arm's length, just here it is, uh, would encourage people to do certain kinds of things. because Islam was doing that. Buddhism had a lot of uh, chairs and those chairs and Buddhism has been very favorable, the academic world has been very favorable to uh, Buddhism. Uh, so why not why not for us? So we did a uh, couple of years, we did uh, visiting professors at Harvard. We did uh, five years in a row indology conference at Harvard where a lot of people were brought from various disciplines. Uh, besides Columbia and and Princeton, we had University of California, Hawaii, all sorts of places, and it was about ten years of this uh, that I realized that you know thinking out of the box is not going to happen in the box, and thinking thinking that is paradigm changing is not going to come from there, and thinking that will upset disrupt is not going to come from these old establishments. So you it's almost like in uh, the rhetoric of. Uh, Uh, Bernie Sanders on one side and Donald Trump on the other side that you got to be outside the establishment to critique the establishment. I saw that sort of thing happening in the way the academic academic study of Hinduism was taking place. So my uh, understanding of uh, Hinduism in in America is this sort of a chronology. And I found that the Hindu community was not interested in what I had to say. This is very strange. Now of course it's the other way around. But I went to the uh, political people, the consulates and all that, the embassies, they said we don't worry. You know, We are a secular country, we don't worry about all this. And they were a bit embarrassed that I was raising issues. Uh, then I went to the various sung related organizations in the US and they were saying we are doing very well. We got 800 temples and we got you know uh, so many Hindus and this much money going back to India. I mean they were looking at the wrong measures. They were not looking at what happened in the academy. Uh, so. Things changed when we started pointing out, we started uh, sponsoring people to, to study textbooks, school textbooks and that caught people's attention. We started that in the mid-90s. We started going to conferences and started writing reports about what was wrong in the textbooks. Rather than higher education it was textbooks because people had school kids, they were very worried. That is what got the whole thing going in terms of diaspora interest. So diaspora got interested in the kind of work and meanwhile, a lot of I had been writing blogs and writing. Uh, there weren't blogs in those days, but a lot of emails and stuff like that. Posting on the internet. Had it not been for the internet, we would have been killed, because there was every attempt to ignore, then uh, badmouth us, then slander us, then call us all kinds of names. But you know, once this spark had been ignited, uh, it only helped me with the more we got attacked, because that aroused people's curiosity, and so being attacked became, uh, being non-ignorable became a strategy to say, say things that people won't ignore. Well, they may like it or they may not like it but they should not ignore. And so ever since I've tried to come up with new insights into what is going on with Hinduism in America, uh, trying to provoke, trying to find gaps in knowledge or where there's major tilt that should be corrected. And I'm not always right. But I think to open a conversation which others who are better qualified than me can come is a good thing to do rather than waiting for the time when I may have a perfect answer which I never will. So I am I'm, uh, I'm more interested in being uh, a conversation starter. Define a problem area, define a battlefield, an intellectual battlefield if you will rather than somebody claiming to have solved the problems. And I am very happy to, that I, I don't know how to solve many problems but I can put the spotlight and say here is an issue. And, and, and what the issue is I can give you my views on it, enough to get, uh, enough to ignite a conversation. So that's, that's how I, uh, I, I have approached this whole issue of uh, Hinduism in America. Now, um, I discovered somewhere along the way that um, <coughs> when you profile white America, different kinds of people, different kinds of value systems. A friend of mine was in the business of uh, marketing demographics and they they look at uh, what are the psychographics, the lifestyle, values, interests of different categories. So in a conversation this person tells me that the uh, profile of a white female, liberal, a liberal white female, typically they looked at what are the top characteristics. And the top characteristics are that she's likely to practice yoga, she goes for meditation classes, she's into causes like animal rights, maybe a vegetarian, believes in the feminine divinity the or cosmos being feminine and things like that. So I started wondering why is it that a tradition like Hinduism is considered right-wing when the left-wing liberals have these Hindu ideas? It's a very interesting thing. So that led me on to a whole research which I call the U-turn theory which says that a whole lot of people come and westerners have come and studied Hinduism. For a while they are Hindus some of them get initiated and they wear Hindu clothes and you see their earlier stories they were in a dhoti somewhere in Rishikesh or something. Some of them stay there but most of them move on and that's stage two and they kind of uh, decouple it from Hinduism. They call it new age, they call it spiritual but not religious. That's a fashionable word today. Okay? Which takes these ideas but removes the identity, brand, history, uh, ethnicity and try to appropriate it into sort of whiteness. And then some of them go to stage 3 where they re-Christianize it. So there's Christian yoga and there is uh, Christian Vedanta. A lot of books of that sort have been written. And these are not within the scope of religious studies. You don't have people critiquing these sort of topics too much. There may be some here and there. and then some go to stage four where they start accusing and blaming the source tradition for uh, its abusiveness, its oppression which is there. There is no doubt about it. I mean every tradition has its problems. I am not a defend- I'm not trying to be an apologist saying everything is perfect. But this is a trajectory I found that there is appropriation, recharacterization, reformulation into a western paradigm which could be either Judaism or Christianity or science. Like consciousness studies is a U-turn into science. And Christian yoga is a U-turn into uh, Christianity. There's a lot of Judaic kind of stuff also. There's non-dual Judaism, this kind of thing going on. So I found that uh, this U-turn theory and then the stage four is when they, there's a projection of negatives back on the source. It's almost like arson, you steal something and burn it down, burn down the place. Um, academic arson you might say or civilizational arson. And the same things happened with Native Americans. A lot of their stuff was taken. And then they were accused of all sorts of things. And then there is sometimes stage 5 where this new knowledge of consciousness studies or Christian yoga gets exported to India where it's very hot selling because now American. So I have a lot of things uh, uh, popular in India and when I tell them that the, this export, this import you got from the US if you go further back you will find that those guys got it from our tradition. There's several examples. So I'm also writing now a series of books on the U-turn theory to give many of these examples. So uh, these are these are some of the uh, points I uh, wanted to discuss, so we can we can uh, have a uh, discuss, uh, more of a uh, back and forth conversation. The study of Hinduism, if you look historically, the Western study of Hinduism seems to be in the in the British era. There was the evangelical view. There's a huge archive in the Princeton Theological Seminary that once the librarian showed me, a lot of archive of Protestants and various people going to India and collecting all kinds of materials, writing back, sending back you know, from the early 1800s. So there was this Christian view and then there was this capitalist view, Edmund Burke type of people. Conservatives, capitalists who were more interested in helping the East India Company make money or somehow the British people make more money. So they were not interested in converting people. A lot of uh, Indians mischaracterize that all Europeans are into the Christian evangelical angle. I think that's a blind sight. It's not so. A lot of them are but a lot of them have pure, you know, mercantile type of mentalities. The British East India Company was actually fighting evangelists from England, from Britain, keeping them out because that would upset the, uh, the ability to go and make a lot of money since. Uh, They didn't want them to interfere. They didn't want evangelism to interfere with the the commercial interests that they had. So uh, you cannot say that uh, uh, Indology during the European era was uh, entirely or even primarily for evangelical uh, purposes because it was not. So uh, that was one lens, the, the evangelical lens, and then the other one was the mercantile lens, and the two of them often interacted. And the evangelical lens, Was looking for things that would comprise a religion according to Christianity. So, if you're looking for what is the religion of those people, you're looking for church. What is their holy book? Who are the priests? You know that sort of thing. What's the congregation? So you're looking for those things. But what if uh, you know? So so you have terms like house of worship. But what if somebody's uh, uh, puja is a a tree or a, a river? There needn't be a house per se and there needn't be a congregation you do something at home you see so the the some of that baggage has been removed because more uh, enterprising and better scholars have come in the west to challenge their own orientalism from the past but some of it continues so this business of uh, uh, projecting a judeo christian idea continues in different ways not as blatantly not as explicitly uh, we're not called heathens and infidels like we were In the 1800s, very clearly in a lot of literature. But there are subtle uh, uh, ways that what I call Western universalism creeps in. Western universalism is this idea that the experience of the West, its history, its philosophy, its perspective is sort of the universal. And you see it in invisible ways, in many forms. For instance, uh, many universities have uh, ethnomusicology. But you know why isn't Mozart part of ethnomusicology? Why is this normal music and then ethnic music? Who gets to be the normal? I mean if the Chinese were ruling the world would they say that the Mandarin based music is the music and then Mozart is ethnomusicology? From their point of view maybe so. And what constitutes ethnicity? It's non-whiteness or difference from white. What is ethnic food? I mean why isn't English meat and potatoes ethnic just as much as you know, uh, or something. So the idea of uh, whiteness as a kind of an invisible universalism is there. And it's there not only in pop culture, it's there in philosophy, it's there in uh, what constitutes scholarship, who has authority or adhikar. The academy runs on a system of adhikar, a su- system of certification which is not as per the Indian tradition. Now that's another thing I had to educate the Hindu diaspora, that when a swami comes, He's welcome for an evening talk. That's sort of extracurricular, but he's not in the curriculum. He's not. We he wouldn't be qualified in the curriculum uh, to be a professor, even though he may be credentialed at the highest level in his own tradition. But if he doesn't have the certification as per the Western criteria, he's not qualified. Now that's a very strange thing, because the Western idea of uh, of being credentialed is non-experiential. So, so in our in it's text based because the bible there are text oriented book uh, book based uh, religions in our case the highest yogi would not be considered to have adhikar to be a pro- proper teacher because he didn't have the credentials he didn't read text necessarily but for our for us a bhakt or a, a yogi uh, or or somebody with uh, a huge meditative experiences would be would be a highly qualified person so even what is credentialed who can have a faculty position? who gets to be on the editorial board? I mean there are, the criteria are based on or influenced by Western universalism. I would grant you that this is not one hundred percent of the time and somebody will raise a hand and say well that's not you cannot essentialize i 'm not trying to essentialize I 'm trying to make a point and sometimes you make a point by isolating and focusing on something not because it 's the only thing that's going on but because that's something interesting to bring your attention to so um, i 've had this Combat with Western universalism for uh, for a very long time. And um, now, this, um, this critique is not limited to Westerners. Indians have imported a huge amount of these problems, particularly those with Western education. And I had a western education so I can relate to that. And every time I go to India which is you know three, four times a year, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of gatherings with my old friends from school and college. They are all very westernized and they all got big posts in various places. And they think I am a weird kind of odd person because they have become alienated. They're most Indians in elite positions are alienated. Uh, Delhi culture particularly. People in industry, government, Indian administrative services, Indian foreign services. I gave a talk on our identity history and all that to the graduating class of the Indian foreign service. They are the ones who become diplomats. There were 30 of them. And I was very surprised at their their attitude towards our own heritage. It's highly secularized. I would say uh, almost ashamed of the past. So how did all this happen? who did this this all happened probably after independence so maybe we were closer to our roots during the British time and maybe after we got independence there was a craving to become like the British so we stepped into the British uh, clubs and the British lifestyle to become the new Saabs because that was our idea of uh, superiority and then we tried decided to outdo them yeah so this is this is these are problems that I, I come across so the um, if this has become worse, now a fierce, fierce is the term, Indian left exists with a determined project all the time to bring down anything like, uh, anything like I'm talking about as chauvinistic and nationalistic and, you know, the point is all I'd like to see is the same space, the same respect as other traditions get. I mean I, I don't see so when I coined the term Hindu 20 years ago I coined the term Hindu because the term Islamophobia was very popular, and there was there would be an award given to some book on Islamophobia. There would be conferences. There are academic, uh, you know, the the, the the term Islamophobia is very well known, and it's not considered Islam chauvinism when you talk about Islamophobia. In fact, it's considered cool that you talk about Islamophobia. But when I searched on Google, there was no hit on Hindu phobia. So, I said, I'm going to start using that term. And I did. And now I think it's got some currency. We should be able to talk about Hindu phobia. And it should not be considered you're an activist, you're a politician, you are in league with this or that political group, and you're saffron. I mean, come on. Why isn't Hindu phobia a fair topic of academic research? Why aren't there academic books trying to investigate Hindu phobia? not looking down and making fun of these uh, the, uh, people who are trying to do whatever they can to expose. But trying to look at it honestly, that there is Hinduphobia. I mean there are temples that are not getting permission sometimes from a political point of view. There are so many cases of bias in schools. This has been documented in the last 20 years we could write many volumes. So it's larger than life, it's the elephant in the room and the academics are still not uh, paying attention to it, still not acknowledging that such a thing even, even exists. So. Uh, I will, I will just make a few remarks and then we, I think, have more time for questions that will be probably more interesting. Uh, Now, the, uh, I mentioned earlier that during the British era there was the lens of evangelism and then there was the lens of the capitalists, you know, conservatives and people like that. What didn't exist, at least not hugely, which is now a dominant lens, is Marxism. Even though Marx came in the 1800s, late, the empire didn't sponsor a whole lot of Indology using Marxism, presumably because it didn't suit them. They wouldn't want an upheaval. They wouldn't want while they're in control to have a revolution of you know, the public, the masses. And also in any case, not until Lenin took the idea into, the, into practice in Russia and then other Uh, communist revolution started in the 1900s, the idea had been just a theoretical one anyway. So for whatever reason, I am not a historian on Marxism, for whatever reason uh, the the Indology with all these variations and different kinds of orientalists was not sort of a Marxist enterprise but it has become that. It has become, uh, this is another very big thing that's happened. That the, uh, the, while the uh, zealous uh, pursuit of Indology and Hinduism by the seminaries continues. The Christian seminaries continues. Uh, the uh, the Western uh, pursuit from a capitalist East India Company lens has not been there as much. Maybe now it's coming up because uh, because now there's a capitalist interest in India, uh, you know. So that uh, lens of capitalism may come back. But uh, the lens accompanying the evangelical lens has been the Marxist one. And so it's Marxism which has imported a whole lot of theories, uh, a whole lot of western ideas and uh, kind of put, applied them to study Indian society. So they are looking for what will fit. Like the evangelists were saying, okay, what is the house of worship? What qualify, What's the equivalent of a priest? What's the sacred book? You know, what's the canon? What's the congregation? They were looking for five or six standard building blocks that comprise a religion. They were looking for those things and they characterized it that way. Uh, so now it's the Marxists looking for things that will fit, uh, and, and that's that's why I think where the battlefield is. The battlefield of uh, people who want to give Hinduism its space in its own voice is not entirely with evangelists. Unfortunately, Hindus are blind to the fact uh, to this. They feel that it is all about evangelism. The bigger fight is with Marxist leftist. Uh, And the way to tackle it is not to sort of say we are right wing because I don't think we are right wing. I just give you examples of the liberal white women who are practicing Hinduism but not calling it that. So you cannot say we are right wing. Uh, Hinduism is, you cannot really characterize it as left or right and I just don't like the the pigeonhole nature of it. And quite frankly the people who are Marxists have a lot of sense too. They are saying a lot of wise things. There is there is, there is a lot of egalitarianism in, in our culture. There is a lot of, uh, there have been movements, Bhakti movement and many others that champion the rights of uh, poor people. There has been this, uh, uh, this ability from within without importing anything, without uh, some sanctions and human rights violations uh, being imposed on you and Ford Foundation funding these things. Without this kind of a foreign intervention there has, been a teni- there has been the ability within the Indian culture to self-correct. So we have problems but we also come up with solutions. We shouldn't deny that we have problems, but we can also be more creative in coming up with a solution. So uh, I'll stop with that. This is this is a lo- big field. We can go on for a long time, and I thank you for listening. And may- and afterwards we'll have some Q and hope. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Rajivji, for the talk. Uh, one Rajiv. comment I can make: one I forgot. Sure. One thing I'm disappointed by is that. The, um, the study of Hindu phobia in general, that's one, has not entered the academy as a legitimate academic pursuit. Uh, it, if it's discussed at all, it is talked in the, it's in the sense of dismissing those right-wing guys and they're making trouble, and they're bad guys, you know. I don't understand that because uh, a similar claim of the insiders uh, from the side of uh, African-Americans is highly respected academic topic. From the side of gays, it's, a, it's an insider perspective. From the side of women, it's been an insider perspective. You can go on. There's a lot of other identities where the insider perspective is a highly respected pursuit of academic study. But I don't see, with the same vigor, the Hinduphobia topic as being a theme for conferences and PhDs and so on. And the second theme I find missing is what I call digestion, which is these U-turns that are taken which result in a lot of uh, hindu and buddhist ideas becoming digested into judeo christianity and or western science in some way but i don't find that i mean when i go and discuss it it's always a fight people deny it then when i give example they say okay so what who owns culture i mean you have to really pull it out of them you have to really pull it, the history of ideas the history of ideas and the 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 indian origin of many ideas that have become supposedly universal or western is not a topic of study. So, I am uh, more interested in starting uh, areas which others like you can join and enter. Uh, and once I feel that uh, an area has captured enough people's attention, then I am usually uh, obsolete from there. I got to move on and do something else. So, uh, that's all I am trying to do, is create interest in more inquiry. And And you would think that the liberal academy would be uh, because they like more knowledge, they like more perspective, they say, more diversity, more pluralism, you would think that somebody who is provoking, even criticizing them would be welcome, would be welcome. You know, but that is not the case. It is a very close kind of… Uh, criticism is great from amongst themselves. Those who are certified, licensed, part of the peer cartel, they, are, they, they uh, criticize each other within certain parameters, within certain paradoxes, pa- paradigms. But if you are not one of them, you are truly somebody else, and you want to take shots at what they are doing and you want to claim that this is my tradition too. Uh, it's, it's considered to be like the rude native informant talking back. You, the native informant, you know. You are the native informant. You'll answer my questions. I'll take your data. I'll publish it. You know your place. And this is the native informant who is very defiant and we've got to teach him a lesson. So, that's the kind of uh, thing that I have faced. And I, I relish when, they, uh, uh, you know, when people say that. I have no problem. I am quite thick-skinned now. Uh, and so uh, every time i do a book i try to open a new kind of t- uh, new area of conversation get it out of the closet and let it take it life its own thank you